Welcome here. <laughs> How are you guys? So good to be able to talk to all of you and to have all of our sites, all of our campuses joining us this weekend. And before we jump in, uh, I get to make a very special announcement. This week, we uh, were privileged to be able to extend an offer of employment for a new pastor to seniors. And so Gary Lidstone and his wife, Kim, we're going to throw a picture up on the screen. Uh, they'll be joining us. It'll probably be in October sometime. We're still working out the key details on that. But they agreed. They want to join our staff team. They've been part of Northview a couple of years. Uh, so we are very, very excited to have that role filled. And so I encourage you, those of you who have already met them and know them, uh, and everybody, if you would pray for them uh, as they come on our staff team and join us. Uh, and that's really exciting news. Uh, as well, over the summer, uh, I had a, a, a fun summer in the fact that I got to visit all of our sites and all of our services uh, on the weekends that I was off and listening to just this incredible team of teachers that we have. And so thankful to God for just this young group of uh, up and coming preachers and a couple of old guys like Ezra, um, but carrying the pulpit through the summer months. And what an encouragement. And the other thing that I realized as I'm traveling from site to site and service to service, in every site that I'm going to or every service, I'm bumping into people who are new to Northview. Uh, many new to Abbotsford and looking for a church, uh, Abbey and Mission, uh, some that are looking for, uh, you know, just a, a fellowship, seeking God. And so it's been cool to welcome so many new people over the summer. And so I thought as we get back into the fall, uh, I, I would like to do two things uh, as we launch into our fall series. So here's what we're going to accomplish tonight. I, I want to take a few minutes to talk to those who are new. So if that happens to be you in the room and you're like, maybe even visiting this weekend, and saying, hey, this is a new thing for me. Uh, I don't know a lot about this church. Would like to know a little bit about it. Or even if you're old to North, you can listen in. And then talk a little bit about where we're going in our fall series. So those are the two things we're going to accomplish. So if you're new and you're wondering, uh, what kind of church is Northview? And I don't mean on the macro scale. I don't mean in the sense of, yes, we're part of the evangelical wing of the Protestant church worldwide. And I don't even mean that we're part of a denominational family, although we are happily Mennonite brethren, part of 250 churches across the country, and that's our denominational home. So I'm not talking about the core beliefs, the core theological and doctrinal beliefs, our confession of faith, our statement of faith, all of those things. You can go on the website, and if you've visited and you've visited the website, you've probably done that. You've looked at what is it that we believe. What I'm talking about in particular is what kind of a church is this in the sense of what is the, the atmosphere, the feel, the vibe? What is it that makes this church different from others? Not better than others, just simply different from others. Uh, those of you who've been in the church any length of time will know that in any given city, there can be maybe a dozen or more churches that all share basically 95% of our doctrine we would share. We'd agree upon that. And yet you walk into any one of those individual churches and each one of them have their own unique flavor, right? Are you with me? You get that. So what is it that makes Northview feel like Northview? Uh, so about 18 months ago, our senior leadership team took about a week away, and we were talking and praying about uh, the direction of the church, where we're going, and our statement being deeply rooted followers of Jesus. And one of the conversations is, what are the unique things that we really see that God has shaped into us? So over the last 43 years, the church history that we are building upon, what has God created Northview to be already and what is it as well that we want to grow into? And we really see those as being one and the same. And we came up with six statements. And so I'm going to throw them on the screen for you. And number one was very, very easy. We want to be a people of the book. That we have a high view of scriptures. I mean, that was just fundamentally first thing out of the gate. We're like, number one is this, that this book is our authority. 
that we believe that God has revealed his plan for our life, that we're not smart enough to make decisions about our life, that we need an authority, we need a source of truth outside ourselves. And people use all different kinds of words to talk about the authority of scripture, words like inerrancy and infallibility and authority and necessity, and all of those are really good words. And whatever words you choose, but it's like Amos said, the Lord has hung a plumb line for his people. And a plumb line is always true and straight, and the word of God is our plumb line, so we want to be a people of the book. Secondly, we want to be a people who are hungry for God, hungry for God. Uh, We talked about edifying experiences and the fact that we want to create times and places and environments where we can meet with God. How can the The Spirit of God move in our life, and we know that we can't cause the winds of the Spirit to blow, but we certainly can set the sails of our hearts so that when the Spirit is moving, that we are there, we're ready, we're we're listening. And so the question, of course, is how, when we gather, uh, our dependence in prayer and our friendships, does it reflect a sense of anticipation and hunger? I want to meet with God. I want to know God. And then even on the personal level. Like when your feet hit the floor as you're crawling out of bed in the morning, do you go into your days expectant of going, in this day, in my work a day, going about whatever I'm doing in my 24-7s, I want to see the fingerprints of God. I want to see the glory of God. I'm hungry to know God. We want to be that kind of people. Thirdly, we talked about being a people who are willing to lead and a culture of leadership. So this one's an interesting one because you will know that we do a lot of investment in leadership training. So we place a very, very high value on calling out young men and women who are looking after professional ministry opportunities. So our ministry program, apprentice programs, our immerse program, and then a lot of lay leader ministry development on the formal and the informal. But beyond that formal stuff, it is talking about this whole concept that from, from city hall to, to uh, the home front, from the sports field to the school to wherever it is you're doing your daily life, that our world is hungry for leadership. You know this, right? Our world is hungry and is actually looking for men and women who are filled with conviction and values and courage. And so we take it really seriously, Ephesians 4.11, that says our job as those serving inside the church as pastors and leaders, our job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. In, In other words, when you walk out those doors, you're headed out to go to work. You're headed out to do the work of ministry where you spend the majority of your 24-7s and are we creating a willingness to say, you know what, I want to step in and serve the Lord whatever area of influence he would give me in the workaday world. Number four, we want to be people fully surrendered to God. Uh, We call it whole life discipleship, this whole idea of head, heart, and hands that uh, our knowledge and the warmth of our heart and the skills of our hands that they would all go together and and basically meaning fully surrendered lives, fully devoted lives. Uh, In other words, just put it simply that our weekday lives would be congruent with our weekend lives. That we would not be guilty of living one kind of life when we're in the gathered people of God in a service or in a Bible study somewhere and then going out and living a different kind of life. But no, we live a fully devoted, not legalism, but a full-on devotion saying, Lord, I want you to be honored in every area of my life, whole life discipleship. My life has changed. My values have changed. My sexual ethic has changed. The way I spend my money has changed. The way I'm raising my kids, my marriage, my family, everything has changed because of the work of Jesus in my life. Full life discipleship. Number five, we talked about a people who are attuned to the voice of God 
or being grounded in wisdom is how we did it, that we're like, we are not smart enough in and of ourselves in the times that we live in, in the world, and all the challenges coming up against us, that we desperately need to hear the voice of God. We are asking the Lord, Lord, would you lead us as we open our hearts to you in prayer, as we go to the word and we listen to the spirit. We don't know what the future holds, the old saying goes, but we know who holds the future. So are we going to him and growing in prayer and a dependence on the spirit and asking God for wisdom in the days that we live in? And then finally, number six was this, we want to be a people who are willing to attempt great things for God. We want to have a, a risk-taking vision that will stretch us beyond it. We, we want to actually be to the point, it's interesting, you know, we had this conversation at the elders table recently, are we willing to fail in order to attempt great things for God? Like, are, are we always so safe in how we plan everything out that there's just no way humanly we could ever fail? Or are we willing to take a risk for the sake of the kingdom and say, we are willing to stick our neck out in, in faith following the Lord? So that's a little bit of the kind of church that we want to be. So if you're new to Northview or if you're old to Northview, that's the kind of people we want to be. And do we do it perfectly all the time? Of course not. But that's what we aspire to. And if you've been around here any length of time, you know that our rhythms are really pretty simple. We gather together and we scatter. We gather in large settings like this. Uh, we gather in smaller groups and around the tables in Bible studies and living rooms for community groups. We open our Bibles, we pray together, and we try to encourage each other. But when we gather, you know, it, it's actually pretty basic. It's pretty simple what we're doing. It's basically worship and the word. We turn our attention towards Jesus. Not a lot of fluff and not a lot of entertainment, not a lot of bells and whistles. Scripture reading, music and songs and prayers that are intended to lift our eyes, to get out of the daily grind of life and to lift our eyes, to focus again on Jesus. And then once our hearts are prepared through that time, we turn our attention back to this book. And faithfully, we come to this book and we open this book and nearly every week, you're gonna hear somebody say, grab your Bibles, open your Bibles to a particular text. And Lord, would you make your word live to us? Would you make it come alive to me? Would you remind me of who you are and of what you have done? And then would you remind me of who we are and how we respond, how we live? And would you empower us to live these lives that we want to live because we know that we can't live them unless your sustaining grace helps us. And so then we gather and we grow and we go. And so I, I could say so much more about this, but that's where we're headed. So if you're new, I want you to know that that's the kind of church we aspire to be. Now, next weekend, we're headed back into a study that we started last year. Some of you will remember this. We started the Gospel of John, and we spent two-thirds of last school year going through the first half of the book, and we're going to spend two-thirds of this school year going through the second half of the book, so literally right up till Easter, and we're going to spend our time there, and I thought as, you know, we're jumping back into this, and obviously we're going to have to do a little bit of review and looking back, and what did we cover last year and all that kind of stuff, but I thought, you know what, where better to start off our fall than where the Gospel of John begins, and so that's where we're going to start in the book of Isaiah. You with me on that? So you need your Bibles open to Isaiah 40. That's where we're going to be. Now I'm going to anchor it in John chapter 1. So John's gospel, maybe you remember if you were here about this time last year, we started this book. John's gospel opens talking about a preacher named John, John the Baptist. 
And there was a man sent by God, chapter 1, verse 6, whose name was John, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light, Jesus is the light, that all might believe through him. And so John comes preaching a revival message. John comes preaching the kingdom of God is about to break in, and so get ready to meet with God. And the the cool thing about John's ministry is that we don't have to speculate about what he was preaching on about. The thousands of people who went out to him and, and got baptized by him because John himself tells us in this text what he was preaching about. Uh, John confesses, he's like, you know what, I actually didn't write my own sermon. Because embedded in John chapter 1, there's a hyperlink to an Old Testament text. Or, or maybe John went on chat GPT, I'm not sure. Give me a message on revival, and it spit out Isaiah 40. That could be. But what he is saying is here, my message is actually a very old, old message. So in John 1.19, it says, and this is the testimony of John. The Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem, and they said, who are you? And they, they went on to ask, you know, are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? And he's like, no, 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 I'm not one of those. And so then they said to him, okay, well, who are you? And he said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And here it is, here's the hyperlink, as the prophet Isaiah said. The message I'm preaching out here in the wilderness and why people are coming to me is the exact same message that Isaiah was talking about, make a way for the Lord. Now, some of you know immediately Isaiah 40 because it's a very familiar and popular text in this great long book. It is one of the deepest and richest and sweetest Old Testament passages, and it starts with these words, comfort Comfort my people. Oh my goodness, beautiful. Comfort, comfort my people. And then it ends with a promise that I know most of you will have seen somewhere on a poster or a coffee mug or a t-shirt. And it's like even youth grow tired and weary. Even young men stumble and fall. But those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up on wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not be faint. You ever heard that text? Yeah, one of the most familiar. And and you know what? I love this text because I serve on a church staff with a bunch of young bucks that are full of energy and vision and passion. And I love to go to them and say, even the youth grow tired and weary. Take that and smoke it. (laughs) But that rich and assuring promise is interesting because it comes on the heels of a very pointed question. So chapter 40, verse 27 says this, why do you say my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Why do you talk like that? And it's one of the most common questions that all of us ask, that people ask, where is God when it hurts? Lord, have you forgotten me when I'm in the midst of this pain that I'm facing? Lord, do you not know what I'm going through right now? And so Isaiah is told in this context, cry out. And John the Baptist picks up on that message, cry out. And I believe that in our message, our world today, it needs this exact same message that we would cry out. And so we go back to Isaiah for a couple reasons. It's where the gospel of John starts. And we go back there because it addresses one of the most common challenges of our faith. Where is God when life goes sideways? Does he see us? Does he know? Does he care? Has God forgotten me? Has God forsaken me? Now, I don't know if you've ever been forgotten, 
Uh, if you hang out with our family any length of time and our kids are talking about family memories, guaranteed one of the ones that will come up is how many times we left our son behind. The poor little kid, we forgot him on so many occasions. Now, it wasn't as bad as what you think, but in a former life, we're in a, another church family. We've got uh, five, five of us in the home, mom and dad and three kids, and four weekend services and kids' activities and coming and going and Carolyn joining me in all these services and getting people to church. And, and on a couple occasions, and particularly one occasion I remember well, two cars and we get home and I'm like, is Timmy with you? No. Is Timmy with you? No. Oh my goodness, where's Timmy? He's like eight years old, and we're like, oh shoot, we forgot him. So 10, 12 minutes back to church, and there he is just calmly, quietly sitting on the front steps of the church, just waiting. He's like, I figured you'd come back. <laughs> now, I would like to say that that's the only time that that happened to that poor kid, but it actually happened several times, and I think the counseling has helped. He has a little bit of a twitch left, but uh, for the most part, I think he's recovered. Have you ever been forgotten? Have you felt like, God, I don't know what you're up to? The other memory that popped into my brain was as a 21-year-old, so third year, fourth year Bible school, and a really good buddy of mine from Kelowna. We had met first year. We were in the same classes all the way through, became tight friends. He was an incredible athlete. He was an incredible musician. He was like David. He had it all. He was a great preacher. And for whatever reason, he decided he was going to take the year off between year three and four, and he was going to go spend an entire year on a missions experience because he wanted to embed his Bible school education in this internship of missions and then come back and finish off his fourth year. And as he was driving from Kelowna to Calgary to go meet his missions team, a chunk of metal comes off a wheel of a semi-truck and through the windshield and into his face and immediately into eternity he goes. And as a 21-year-old friend, I'm like, God, what are you doing? God, what are you doing? Why on earth would you take a young leader like this, a guy with so much skill and talent and ability, he's too young? And I will tell you, it was six, eight, 12 months of working through that process of, God, where are you when it hurts and feeling forgotten? And I know that every time we gather as a church family, there is somebody in the midst of a storm. And so as we come to Isaiah 40 and John chapter 1, we're going to look at these three things. We're going to look quickly at the historical context. We're going to look at that threefold cry that every generation needs. And we're going to look finally at the promise that gives us such great hope. And all of those things are going to lead us back into this one central theme of this text, that Jesus Christ is the anchor that we need in the storms of life. Just a good message of hope as we start out the fall. So really briefly, let me just remind you of the historical context because it's critical. John chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 40, you could say were written during hard times, quote unquote. They were written during dark times. So the specifics of John's gospel, it covers the lifetime of Jesus' public ministry and a few months, maybe a couple years prior, John the Baptist's ministry, and then up to the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So probably a three to five year period, somewhere late 20s into the mid 30s, somewhere in that little window of the first century. And you're like, okay, fine, well and good. But what is going on in the first century in Israel, beyond the biblical text, just culturally, politically, what's going on? The Jewish nation is not in a happy time in their history in that moment in time. In fact, they haven't been in a happy place for over 500 years, if you know the story. Because for more than five centuries, they have lived under the thumb 
of foreign rule and foreign dominion and power. Nation after nation after nation has invaded. It was first Egypt and then Assyria and then it was Babylon and they're carried as exiles and then Babylon falls to the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire falls to Greece and then Greece eventually falls, falls to Rome and with each successive military conquest of their homeland, it's like the file marked the Jewish nation just gets shuffled from one desk, desk to the next desk of the conquering general. The outgoing one hands it off to the incoming one and they're under the rule of a government that they never wanted to be under. And by the time we get to the New Testament Gospels, the Roman Empire is now in full bloom. Caesar Augustus has amalgamated world power, and he holds power over most of the then-known world in this firm grip of this thing called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. The Peace of Rome. And what the Peace of, the Ro of Rome said is, you know what, you're free. You're free under Roman law to live as you please, so long as. So long as you don't push back on your oppressor. So long as you pay your taxes, so long as you salute the Roman centurion, so long as you hail Caesar as Lord, take a pinch of incense. You're even free to practice your own religion in the Pax Romana. You can have your own faith system, just don't bring it into the public square. Keep it private. Keep it hidden. Keep church and state separate. Sound familiar? This Jewish nation is now in a constant state of tension. Now, if you think that left politics and right politics are something we created, ha! It's been around forever. And you see it in this context. You see some who are literally like, let's revolt against Rome. Let's kick them out. Let's rebel. You get others who are like, no, just keep your head down and keep quiet. Should we stay quiet or should we chase them out? Should we storm the Capitol? And if you know the story, you'll know in AD 66, that's precisely what they did. They tried a revolt. And by AD 70, in this incredible massacre, this incredible bloodbath, when Rome comes in and squashes them and destroys the temple and basically a blitzkrieg on Jerusalem because of their rebellion. Why is this important? Somebody's already saying, I know every, anytime we talk history, people's faces glaze over. I can see it. I can see it through the cameras. Why take the time to unpack a 2,000-year-old historical setting? And, the, and it's for this reason, the cultural moment into which John's gospel opens has a lot in common with ours. The nation is in dark days and God sends a preacher. He sends a preacher with a very old message, the very same message that Isaiah had preached 600 years prior at another time when the nation was in deep doo-doo. That's a very formal theological term in the original language. The book of Isaiah was also written for dark times, and I'm not going to bother going into it, but the same situation, it's not Rome back then, it is Babylon amassing power. And on the context of Babylon is ready to in, in, invade, and they know that they're going to be dragged away, but they're given a promise in advance that I will preserve a remnant from among you, I will bring you back, and, and I wish we could spend more time here because it's so critical, but I want to just make this comment, C.S. Lewis says the challenge of every generation, so our challenge, he would say, is that we live with a sense of chronological snobbery. Now, you got to think this through, that we live, every generation, with a sense of chronological snobbery. 
And he goes on to say, what does he mean by that? Well, it's this, that on one hand, we think somehow we are better and smarter and wiser and more advanced than all those previous generations. If we had lived back then, we would have not made the decisions they made. We're wiser. We know better. Those poor, uneducated people. It's why around the world we tear down statues. Because we say we would not have made the decisions that those people made. So we got to tear down the statues. On the other hand, the flip side, it's easy to forget that we are not the first generation to face challenges and struggles and hard times. And what it means on both those fronts is that we should approach our lives with some level of historical humility. And so that's the context. Dark days, and my world needs an anchor. So cry out, man, cry out. Comfort, comfort my people, speak tenderly to them, and then eventually get up on a mountain and shout this message with strength. And what was he intended to cry out? Well, I'm glad you asked. Was he supposed to cry out? There's lots of things you can cry about, Isaiah. Are you supposed to cry out about the latest political decision that some bureaucrat made? Are you supposed to cry out about how God's people are being pressed down and we're being pushed to the margins? Are you supposed to cry out about the SOGI curriculum in schools and bank interest rates are rising and the crisis in Ukraine and everything that we're hearing about 24-7 every day of the week, cry out about the latest firestorm on social media? Not at all. Because that's what you hear all the time from everybody all around the world. Stop it. Cry out about something different. Cry out about strength and courage. Cry out about these three things. The glory of the Lord is about to be revealed. The word of God will stand. And the arm of God will prevail. Now there's a message our culture needs to hear about. The glory of the Lord is going to be revealed, so would you get ready for it? The word of God is going to stand, so drill a deep well. The arm of, the God, of God will prevail, and so we can rest. So let's look at them quickly. The glory of God will be revealed, verses 3 to 5. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley will be lifted up, every mountain will be made low, the uneven ground will become a level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." And the question this text presses into us is, how do we prepare when somebody important is about to show up? In the ancient times, the culture, they would have known that it was common when a dignitary, when a king, when a ruler was going to make a visit to town, the roadways would have been prepared in advance. The potholes would have been filled in, the road would have been straightened as much as possible, made smooth, easy passage for the king, the king's chariot, the king's carriage needed smooth passage for the royal bum. And we do the same thing today, do we not? We do. When the 2010 Winter Olympics came to Vancouver and Whistler, we literally spent millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars making the roadways wide. All the way up to Whistler. We widened that road for all the dignitaries. We built an entire SkyTrain system direct from the airport right to downtown. Don't need to rent a car, get off the airplane, jump on the train, and boom, you're right down to the center of activities. We were preparing the way for important people to come. 
When a dignitary rolls into town, we roll out the red carpet. And what John is crying out, what Isaiah cried out, and what we're supposed to be crying out is this. God wants to make his glory known. And in fact, his glory will be revealed. And the question we face is simply this. Are we making way for him? Are we making room for him? Are we hungry for him? Do we want to see him? Do we want to experience him? And are we putting ourselves in places where God can move? And, and so just ask yourself simply this way, am I hungry for God? Am I eager to see his glory? And, and that's actually a frightening thing to ask. I think for the most part in our day, we go throughout our lives living pretty unglorious lives. Because every encounter you see in the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, every encounter with the living God, how do people end up? On their faces. Isaiah, earlier in this book, a vision in the temple, and he's like, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Ezekiel, a vision of the Lord, and four times throughout the book, on my face, on my face, on my face, and the Spirit of God keeps standing him back up. Saul, on the road to Damascus, persecuting the church, the vision of Jesus, and he's a puddle on the road. And the question we got to ask is, how long has it been since I've been overwhelmed by the power and might and presence and the glory of our God? And what we need to hear and know and be reminded of this and what our world needs to know is that there is glory on the horizon. The glory is all around us if we would simply open our eyes. And that God wants to be known and he wants to be seen and he does and he will manifest himself. But the question is, are we making way for him? Are we making the road smooth? The second cry in that text is that the word of our God will stand. What a beautiful challenge. A voice says, cry, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you ponder that text, it is a smack in the face for our arrogant, self-centered age. Because what it says to us humanly is, do you want to know what your life is like? Huh. Look at the grass of the field. Look at those wildflowers. Fresh and green in the morning, full of vigor and strength and beauty and youth. But it so quickly fades. Uh, the sun comes up, the heat blows, the wind blows, and dry by evening. And so it doesn't matter. 70, 80, 90 years they pass. Woo! So quickly. Where did my life go? Where did it go? Every funeral you attend, you will sense this sentiment in the room. If only we had had a little longer. It doesn't matter how old the person was. doesn't matter how much they had suffered in sickness. At every funeral, there is this sentiment, I just wish we had had a few more days. Are you not with me on that? James uses the analogy of the morning mist. We're very familiar with that in the Fraser Valley. The morning fog, and by noon it's gone. Your life is a vapor, he says. And only God and his word are eternal. So regardless of what's happening in the world around us, regardless of everything else that everybody's crying on about, whether we're living under a dictatorship or a democracy, whether we are in times of wealth or poverty, whether we are in war or at peace, there is an unchanging anchor for our life, and it is the living word of God that abides forever. 
And it is why you will hear us over and over and over and over again asking you the question, how deep is your well? How deep is your well? Are you getting down into this book? Are you making time? And literally, I'm asking you, are you making time every day to get into God's word? To open up this book and maybe a cup of coffee and a journal and say, God, would you make your word live to me? Would you take your word and would you bring it alive in my soul? Would you speak to me? Would you change me by your living word? And if there's nothing else in this life that is eternal, if everything else fades and gets blown away, I want to be anchored deep. Oh God, would you make us hungry? And then finally, there's this final cry. Lift up your voice with strength. I love that one. Lift up your voice with strength. Tell them about the arm of the Lord. So go down to verse 10 and 11. Behold, the Lord God who comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He'll gather the lambs in his arms. He'll carry them in his bosom uh, and gently lead those that are with young. The arm of the Lord is both strong and tender. He rescues us. He wraps us in his mighty arms like a shepherd lifting up that little lamb out of the flock. And then the arm of the Lord is also strong and and mighty to save. And if you know Isaiah's book, and I want to say Isaiah's gospel because it is so Christ-centered, that the theme of the arm of the Lord comes up again and again and again throughout the rest of this book. And Isaiah asks these very compelling questions. Do you think the arm of the Lord is too short to reach you? Do you think the arm of the Lord is not strong enough to save you? Are you worried somehow that you have wandered beyond the reach of the arm of our loving God? Oh, give your head a shake. Give your head a shake. The the Lord's arm is mighty and strong to save. Let let me remind you of who God is. And then he goes on to this long rant. And we don't have time to read it all. But if you just scan through verse 12 to 20, he's like, who holds the ocean in the palm of his hands? Who set the boundary for the universe, all the galaxies and the stars? He knows where the universe comes to an end. You think your kings and kingdoms and nations and governments are a big deal? Let me tell you this. They're like a drop in the bucket. They're like dust on a scale that I just blow away. Who gives counsel to the Almighty? And then he goes on to say this, verse 22 to 26. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. That's how big we are. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings peace, princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth and he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom will you compare me, says the Lord. That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, because he is strong in power, not a single one is missing. Get up on a high mountain, Isaiah. Cry out with strength that this is our God. Behold your God. Behold your God. His arm is mighty and powerful. And then he asks that question. So why do you say? Why do you say my way is hidden from the Lord? 
and my right is disregarded by my God? How could you possibly think that if you know who your God is? And then he goes on with this conclusion. Have you not known? Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. And then here's that promise. Even youth grow tired and weary. Even young men stumble and fall, but they who wait on the Lord renew their strength. And you know the rest. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. John's gospel opens with a preacher, a preacher crying out. And from that one ancient sermon, we are then pointed on to the coming redeemer. The entirety of Isaiah's gospel from there on out is the one who is coming to carry the sins of the world. The one who is coming to set the captives free. The one who is coming who will crush sin in our place so that we don't have to be crushed. So comfort, comfort my people with the glory of God, with the word of God and the arm of God. And it points us to this conclusion. And John comes to it when Jesus comes walking. He's like, look right there, the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the anchor that we need in times of trouble. So next week, we're going back to the Gospel of John. We're jumping into the middle. We're jumping into the last week of Jesus' life, the last seven days. We're starting the Passover before the crucifixion. But that book opens with this cry, Isaiah's message, John's message, and it should be our message Our generation needs this message, and so I've got to ask you some questions as we start this new ministry year. Are we making way for the glory of the Lord? Have we set our sail? Have we cleared the path? Are we allowing the word of God to dwell richly in us? Oh God, only your word is eternal. Only your word lasts forever. And are we overwhelmed by the greatness and the glory and the beauty and the power and might of the arm of our Lord? And so I cannot possibly, obviously, I cannot possibly know what is going on in each one of your lives on this September weekend, but I know for certain that every time we gather, every single time we gather, I know that there are a bunch of people sitting in our congregation who are neck deep in some form of a trial a crisis, people who need the comfort of God. And some of you may have come even this weekend out of desperation. God, do you have anything to say to me? I've got to hear the promises of God again. I've got to know that the arm of the Lord is not too short to reach into the situation I find myself in right now so that when we're tempted to say, like verse 27, my way is hidden from the Lord, that we can remind ourselves, no, we know what is true, that Jesus is the anchor that we need. Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord doesn't grow faint or weary. He gives power to the weak. And so we can rest, and we can wait, and then we can get up again, and we can run with strength and with vigor. Really looking forward to the fall. Looking forward to what the Lord is going to say to us through the gospel of John. 
Let's stand together. I want to pray for you. We'll sing. We'll be on our way. Oh, Lord God, you know the days that we live in, and you know the nightly news, and you know the chatter on the street, and you know what social media is on about, and you know all the things that our world is crying about again and again and again, the same things on repeat, the same topics coming back to them over and over and over again, the depressing news on the street. And oh God, how we need to turn back from that and say there's something else that we need to be crying about. We need to be crying about the glory of God, the weight, the heaviness, the doxa, the glory of our God. We need to be crying out about that his word is eternal, There's a deep well there and a strength. And oh God, even in the days we live in, the arm of the Lord is not too short. The arm of the Lord is powerful and mighty. You are tender, you are gracious, and you are strong. Oh God, would you anchor us there? Would we be anchored knowing, Jesus, you are the one who will hold us. You are the one who will keep us. You are the one who did everything that needed to be done for us to be right with the Father. And you also are the one who hold us and keep us to the end. Oh God, strengthen us for these days, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.